As our children are dismissed, I invite you to take your scriptures back to that 1 Peter chapter 4 passage we read earlier. I think you understand in our series on missions in 1 Peter this month that missions is a twofold approach. We share the good news with our words and with our works. It's holistic. We ask questions and we provoke questions. Uh, we preach the gospel with our lips and with our lives. It's not either or, it's both and. For Peter and his readers, missions in Babylon in the first century was a lifestyle. For Peter, one of the fa- ways that sharing faith emerges was from questioning unbelievers. Paul wrote about that too in Colossians 4, 6 when he says that your words ought always to be seasoned with grace and that with salt as well, he says, and so you know how to ought to answer each person. In other words, have your words in such a way that when you're asked about what makes you different, that you'll know what to say. One writer said, live questionable lives so the world will ask why. Fourth century Roman Emperor Julian feared at that time that Christians were going to take over the Roman Empire. And so he refers to them as Galileans. And he talks about Christianity literally as atheism. Atheism because they didn't believe in any of the Roman gods. So he was concerned that Christians were doing so much love and concern for others, their acts of hospitality, their philanthropy, was winning too many of the Roman subjects. And so he decided to take it into his own hands and do something about it. And so he decided to launch an offensive against them. And he did it by mobilizing his own officials and pagan priests of all the gods that they worshipped. And they said, we are going to outlove the Christians. So they began to set up food distribution places, hostels that you could go and live in. If you were a poor person traveling, you'd have a place to stay. stay. And they were going to outlove the Christians. And with just a matter of months, the whole program completely failed because they didn't have the Holy Spirit of God in them. You see, he wrote this, and I quote, this is Julian. Why do we not observe that it is their benevolence to strangers, their care for the graves of the dead, their holiness, and their lives that do the most increase for their atheism? I believe we ought to be the ones that truly practice every one of these virtues. It's disgraceful that when these impious Galileans not only support their poor, but ours as well. All men see that we lack aid to our own people, but they don't. See, first century Christians not only proclaimed God's mercy, they practiced it. Everyone was welcome in the first century church. It didn't matter what race you were. It didn't matter what social status you were. It didn't matter what gender you were. They were literally the most surprising alternative society that was on the planet at the time. And they were people who were constantly, by the way they lived, they were 
raising questions, insatiable curiosity amongst the Romans because they were different than anyone else around. What do they say about us? Let's fast forward from the first century to the 21st century. Are we outloving those around us or are they outloving us? Is our care for those around us in our communities, is it a disgrace to them or is it a disgrace to us? Listen to Titus 2.10. Paul writes, so that in everything they may adorn the doctrine of God our Savior. Do you hear what he says? In everything adorn. That means here, by the way we live our lives, we make the gospel look good by doing good. That's what he says. Adorn. It's the Greek word that we get in English, cosmetics. It's makeup. It's, it's what you do when you get up in the morning, especially ladies, right? You put on the make Why? Because here's what we do. Our lives make God look good to people who don't think that he is. So you have to ask yourself when you read 1 Peter, don't you? Does your life and does my life and does our church, does it attract people or detract people to the gospel? In the first century when Titus 2 was written about adorning the gospel, in the context it was about slaves and their relationships to their master. And in the first century there was nothing more attractive, there was nothing more questionable in a first century life is that people who were slaves treated voluntarily their masters with love and respect. It was unheard of. And he says, you want to make a difference? You want people to ask you about Jesus? As a slave, you live a different kind of life that nobody else is living. See, that was questionable living in first century. And you know what our job is as Christians, according to 1 Peter? It's our job today, our challenge is finding out what questionable lives look like in the 21st century. To figure out what kind of life evokes questions from unsaved people about how you and I live our lives every day. See, leading questionable lives will lead to questions from lost people. So let's take a look this morning, just in these few minutes, to 1 Peter about what it means, this twofold approach of living questionable lives. And there's a word study, that's all we're going to do. One aspect of living a questionable life for the sake of the gospel is that the unsaved people will be surprised by you. The second half is that you should not be surprised by unsaved people. Let's look at them one at a time. Number one, lives that are surprising. Look at chapter 4. The Bible says in verse 4, with respect to this, they are, there's our word, circle it surprised. It's also down in verse 12. Beloved, don't be surprised. Same word. It's also used a little later in the sentence when it comes to test you there's something strange. The word strange is the same word as surprised. All three times it's the word xenos. It means foreigner. It means stranger. That's why the same word is used in a little different form in 1 Peter 4, 9, when it says, you show hospitality. Hospitality was doing good to foreigners, people who didn't live around there. So when someone needed a place to stay or they needed a meal, you were good to foreigners, strangers. See, here's who we are. Remember what we've said so far all month? 
Who you are shapes what you do. We are strangers in this culture. We are the foreigners. We don't fit here. Every summer when I was a kid growing up, my family went to Texas because my mom and my dad and my two older sisters were all from Texas. They were born there. I was the only one born in New Jersey. My dad was stationed here with Mobile Oil Company for about 18 months, and I was born here. And so every time we'd go down there, I'd go down there, and I always thought this in Texas, even though I went a ton of times, everyone down here has such a strong accent. How are you doing, Lance? That's what they say. And they would tell me, you're not from around here, are you? And I said, no, I'm not. You know, I'm from New Jersey. And they say this, you're a Yankee. And I said, no, I root for the Detroit Tigers, because I didn't get what they were saying. It was really their way of saying, Yankee was, you're from above the Mason-Dixon line. You're not a Southerner at all. And then they would ask me this, well, have you ever had black-eyed peas or red-eyed gravy? I said, I, I have no idea what you're talking about. No, actually, I did. I just didn't know what they were called because my mom and dad served it all the time because they're both from the South. My dad was born in Beaumont. My mom was born in San Antonio. I didn't call them those things because I didn't know that's what it was. But those are all things they said. You would, all, you would know that if you're from the South. And then they said this. You have such a strange accent. I never thought of myself as having an accent. When I went to London and lived in London for four months, or four years, during my college years, I always thought, oh, I love the British accent. And, they would, and I would have, oh, just talk for me, because I loved hearing it. And they would go, oh, let me hear your accent. And I, I don't have an accent. I'm an American. We don't have accents. And I said, oh, yeah, we do, from the South. Remember that? You know what the truth is? Hear me. We are the ones with an accent in American culture. See, we're the ones who are the cultural foreigners. We are, can I say it? We are the social Yankees. We don't belong here. We're strangers. Now, the basis of all of this is the paragraph before chapter 4, 3, 18 through 22. And you know what it says? Here's what it says. And this is great. For Christ suffered for sins, the just for the unjust, that he might bring us to God. See, you know, what the, you know why we're different? It's Jesus. It's not just that I was born somewhere and not somewhere. No, the difference is I was reborn somewhere in Jesus. See, I'm different. Not odd different, God different. I'm Jesus different. See, he died for me. The just for the unjust. He he conquered sin and hell and death. He changed my life. So chapter 4, watch, starts with the appropriate word. Therefore, because Christ suffered, he makes it possible for me that I can stop sinning. I can cease from sinning. I don't have to be controlled and dominated by sin anymore. I don't live the same way, he would say. And now, with that basis of what Jesus Christ in his death and resurrection has done for me, see, I'm a changed person, and I'm a foreigner, I'm a stranger, I have an accent, I don't belong here. And verse 2 says, and here's how you live with that. Here's what you're to do with that. Verse 2. So as to live the rest of the time in the flesh, no longer. See the word no longer? It automatically says this. Once I was this and now I'm this. That's us. 
I understand the culture because I used to be in it. I used to talk like that, think like that, act like that, do those things. See, but now I'm different. And verses 2 and 3, all it is is a bunch of different ways of contrasting what you were and what you are as a Christian. You can see it. It contrasts the desires of men, the desires of the Gentiles, with the desires of God. All three of the wills, the will of men, the will of the Gentiles, the will of God, all three of them are in there. It says you used to live this way, and now, verse 3, you live this way. You live according to man, now you do it according to God. Back and forth, back and forth. All it is is a bunch of contrast. Why? Because Peter wants them to know that that's how we reach people. We reach people because we're different, because we have an accent. And when they hear the accent, we're praying and asking God, they'll ask us why. Where are we from? What makes up the difference in our lives? The change, verse 4, is so radical. Look what it says. With respect to this, respect to what? That you live differently. That you don't live the same way. That you're completely different. He says, respect to that, they are surprised. See the first one? That's the first surprise. We live lives that should be surprising to the world. Now last week I emphasized that the difference we make is by doing good. That's positive. This week, Peter says, let me flip it over to the other side. You know how we make a difference? Not by just doing good, but by not doing bad. And so in verse, listen, look at all the things he lists. He says, for the time, verse 3, passed when we used to do those things, what the Gentiles did. Here's how we live. Living in sensuality, passions, drunken orgies, parties, lawless idolatry. Those are all sexual perversions. See, that is normal today. That was normal in the first century. That's why when you don't do all the sexual perverted things, they think you're weird. You're strange. They say, what, you don't do that? It surprises them. Because they live in a culture where pornography is a $97 billion industry. Over 50% of all adults in America say that they watch and look at pornography at least once a week, if not more. Listen to this. One of every four teenagers surveyed had received 12 to 17 illicit texts about sexuality. One in seven teenagers said they had sent those same types of texts to other teenagers See, we live in a day of sexual individualism. See, sex has no inherent meaning anymore. Our bodies are just tools to express ourselves in any way that we determine to do it. And people are surprised when you don't. They're surprised. They think it's strange when they don't view this, we don't view sex the same way that they do. So it says this in verse 4, surprise when you join in with them. After the same flood of debauchery. See, join in with them. It means to run with them. It's a term that means friendship. It means close associations. And see, see, they're surprised. You're a Christian now, and you don't want to hang out with them anymore. You used to be my bud. This is my friend. We used to be be tight. Not anymore. And they don't get it. They don't understand why. That you want to run with them. You're going in a completely opposite moral direction, and it blows their mind. They can't grasp it. 
See, one way to live questionable lives today is to have a lifestyle of moral purity privately and publicly. See, you know what would surprise people in our culture and you know what would evoke questions? That if you would tell them that you're in your 30s and you've never been married but you're still a virgin, that would blow their mind. That you would not watch and you don't want to go to this R-rated movie or worse. Or watch certain TV programs and series. I don't want to come over for that party. Sorry, I don't want to. I can't tell you how many times I've had people when I went to have a meal at a restaurant. And they said, well, would you like to start with a drink? And I said, Diet Coke. And they looked at me like, what? I had even one person say, no, I meant a drink. I said, Diet Coke is a drink. When you don't cuss and use profanity, when you don't tell the jokes everyone else does, nor do you laugh at them, when you tell them that you don't agree with the LGBTQI agenda or any of its lifestyle practices, when you believe that marriage is only for one man and one woman for life, they would think that you're puritanical, that you believe that a lack of moral purity is not an excuse for an abortion, but you would still like people who are pregnant and don't want the baby to make another choice and you'd be willing to help them, they can't grasp that. That's why Peter says it surprises them that you don't live in the same flood of debauchery. And flood is exactly what it means. It means a river, it's a stream. It's, you see, back in the 60s when I was born... You could kind of go downstream a little bit because everybody pretty much thought, even if you weren't saved, the majority of people thought and agreed the same way about morality. That is not true anymore. And Peter said in his century and ours, here's what we're called to do as Christians. We swim upstream against cultural currents. It is a flood. It is not a trickle. It is not just a little puddle. We and our teenagers in which we, listen, we are upstream. Have you ever watched the salmon go upstream? Have you ever watched them jump up, how hard it is? And have you ever watched them as they're doing it, the grizzly bears are waiting for them to jump high enough so they can go into their mouth? That's our culture. If you don't think that's true, you better look around. See, we are in worldly waters that are antagonistic. And Peter says they are full of debauchery. It's the same word used to describe in Luke 15, 13, the prodigal son and the riotous living prodigal son. See, we don't have a prodigal son anymore. We have a prodigal society. We live in a world that is full of debauchery in every possible way, everywhere you turn. It is a flood that we must constantly be fighting against the flow of. Asotia. You know what the Greek word means? Not saved. We live in a world where morals are reflected of who they are. See, in the world it's also true. Who you are shapes what you do. And when you don't have God in it, this is how you live. And we, the Bible says, Peter's telling his people, we are not, listen, the same. We're not the same. Because of that, verse 5 and 6 says they're going to malign you. It's the word blaspheme. They're going to say all kinds of things about you because it surprises them that you are willing to stand out 
to be different in the way that you live. And so one way that we can lead questionable lives and evoke questions is this. Living a morally pure lifestyle constantly, ethically, morally. The other one is this in verses 12 and 13, that we as Christians can't be surprised by them. They may be surprised by us, but we cannot be surprised by them. Look what he says, command form, verse 12. Beloved, don't be surprised. Now, they're going to be surprised, verse 4. You cannot be surprised. Don't be surprised. Don't be surprised at the fiery test that's going to come as though something surprising would happen to you. It's a command. Don't be surprised. Why? Listen, listen. Because when you live for God and people go after you because of it, let me tell you this. Tears won't hurt you. Grief won't hurt you. Being upset won't hurt you. Surprise will. It's dangerous. Allowing yourself to have a mentality of being surprised by the world's response to you living for Jesus is a setup. It is a setup. See, those bitterness is surprise. Self-pity is surprise. See, being surprised is dangerous because if you don't expect it, here's what you'll begin to say to yourself. How could that happen to me? Why would God allow that to happen in my life? Listen, I'm trying to live for God and do the right thing, and this is what he does for me. So we shouldn't be surprised, should we? We shouldn't be surprised if we don't get the promotion at our job, even though we deserve it, because someone else who plays office politics does a better job. Our teens should not be surprised. They are ridiculed and laughed at it, mocked, because they don't do immoral things. Or they don't misuse and abuse social media or disrespect their parents. They shouldn't be surprised, but they shouldn't be surprised if they're the only ones who don't. Our singles, as Christians, you shouldn't be surprised that you're not accepted by others, that you don't get, you're not as popular and people don't ask you out on dates. You shouldn't be surprised by that because you don't practice sex outside of marriage. See, when you live a godly life, here's what you should expect. Don't be surprised if it's negative. Don't be surprised if the world doesn't like it. Parents, don't be surprised that when you raise your children about what is right and wrong, about gender, and about all the things that our world wants to teach our children at the youngest ages in our schools, don't be surprised someday that you, are, you lose your parental rights or are put in jail because you tell your children you were born a boy and that's good. Don't be surprised, he says, that you're going to come into a fiery trial. It's the same fiery trial term used in 1 Peter 1, 6. And here's what it means. It's the Greek word to purify by heat. You know why God allows people, when you stand up for him and you do what's right, to oppose you, even, even violently, aggressively counteract what you're saying and doing? You know why? Because he's purifying you. He's using that fire, that testing in your life, so that you can come forth as gold, that you can stand for him. I had a chance with a number of people from our church. Chantel set up his time. We went down to a pregnancy center, and the lady that runs it, her son was murdered just a couple of weeks ago. He was shot to death. And we went down there to pray with her, And while we're talking to her and she's relaying to us the story about what happened and the aftermath of it, Luz Luz was her name, and here's what she said. 
She goes, you know what? Everybody around me thought, oh, this guy killed my son and murdered him. And they thought I would want to take revenge. And when I go to court, I'm going to get everything I can against him. But she goes, you know what? I did something strange. I, I'm willing to forgive him. You see, she's different. Jesus has changed her life. Everybody else would want to put his face in it. I mean, and make sure he got the highest penalty and want to have nothing to do with him and have hatred. Not her. You know what she says? I forgive him. Oh, she goes, I still want justice because it's right. But I want him to know that he can be forgiven and Jesus can save him. What an incredible, strong testimony. This loose person we met, let me tell you this, she knows what Peter's talking about. Because she's not the same as everybody else. And Peter says, and neither are you. I can't help but think that Peter was thinking about Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. The fiery trial, the testing. Because that's the real Babylon, wasn't it? The first Babylon. Remember he said, I'm making a statue. You bow down. And everybody was bowing down when the worship was played. But not Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. They didn't bow down. Now listen, Nebuchadnezzar was surprised by that. He's surprised, and he's so surprised, believe it or not, he gave him a second chance. He said, well, in case you didn't hear it, because it can't be that you actually decided not to. It can't be why, but it was. And Nebuchadnezzar was shocked. Everybody else was shocked. But they didn't bow down because the result was fiery furnace, right? I mean, who's not going to bow down? These guys weren't. So he calls them up, and you know what? Here, listen, Nebuchadnezzar was surprised but the three guys, they weren't surprised at him when he says, I'm going to heat it up hotter and I'm going to throw you in it. They're not surprised. In fact, read Daniel 3, 16 through 18 for yourselves. You know what it says? We don't have to think about it to answer you. What? They already knew that this could happen. They expected it. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego said, hey, I know the fiery furnace is there, but it's okay because we know that our God is worthy. See, that's the kind of people we are. That's foreign to our culture, to have a committed, devoted love like that for Jesus. See, can I tell you that? That's what our world needs to see. That's what missions is. That's what evangelism is. It's a love for Jesus that doesn't just raise your hand at services, but lives your life differently all day, every day of your life. The little not-but not structure in that passage in Hebrew, in 1 Peter 4, 12 and 13, he says, listen, don't think it's surprise. Don't think it's a surprise. He says, but rejoice. See the little contrast? Not this. Not this. Don't be surprised. That's not your response. You know what your response is? But rejoice. Pastor Walker, come on. Are you killing me? You're, you're, you're kidding me, right? I mean, listen. Rejoice. So when someone mocks me at work or some teenager tells me this about my life, you're, I'm supposed to rejoice. Yes, not be glad that you're being mocked. Not be glad that you're being slandered. Be glad. Why? He says, because you get to be like Jesus to them. If you suffer for doing what's right, guess what? He did too. And because he did, it brought you salvation. See, he made a difference because he was different. Jesus suffered and then was vindicated. And if you get to follow in his steps, if you get to follow in his pattern, he's, here's what, in the midst of suffering, that is something to rejoice in. 
that is something to be happy with. That I could lose something, give up something, be called something. I'm not asking for it, but I'm living lives. I want to live a life that asks other people to take a look and say this, you're different. You are completely different. The question is, are you living a questionable life? Let's pray. Are people surprised by the way that you live? Or is it so much the same as theirs that they wouldn't even know that you're a Christian? You know, I hate to say it, but sometimes the surprise is because they never would have believed in a for anything that you are a Christian because there is no difference. That's what the surprise would be, unfortunately. Do you live life as a Christian that other people are surprised by, oh, you don't do that? You wouldn't do that? Why wouldn't you watch that? Have you evoked any questions lately? Have people asked you about, hey, why do you do that? Why don't you do that? What's the difference? That's what we need. That's what's missing in our evangelism today. People aren't asking because we're not living questionable lives. We're going to sing, I surrender all. With every head bowed and every eye closed, would there be any Christians here today who would say, Pastor Walker, I'm not living a questionable life. I don't think too many people are surprised by the choices I make because I'm so different. But I want to live that life. I want people to ask me about my faith. I want them to ask me about the difference I am and why I do and don't do things. I need to be different like that. I need to not be surprised by the world when they come after me like that. Pray for me. Anybody else? Anyone while we wait, just slip your hand up and I'll thank you. Thank you. Or I write numerous hands. Balcony as well. Anyone else? Pastor Walker, thank you. I want people to be surprised for the glory of God about why I'm different. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Anyone else? Thank you. Father, you know that your son Jesus was different. And because they were surprised, so surprised that what he said and what he did, they killed him. But he wasn't even surprised at that. Oh, Father, we haven't reached that point in America yet, but we're on that same road. Give us the courage. Give us the courage that with love and humility, we might be willing to suffer even so for the sake of our Savior, because he's worthy. He's worthy of living a life that's different, one that demonstrates in everyday ways that he's changed us by his grace. Be glorified in that, and for everyone who raised their hand, Father, I pray that this week, as the change takes place, that we might hear stories, stories for your glory about how changed lives have changed lives. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.